Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you could be here this week. Um, we are really zipping through the book of um, First Peter. It's flown by. Um, this was a great, challenging passage for me. I don't know about you guys, but it was good for me to dig in and learn some things I did not know. So let's open in prayer. Father, please add to these feeble words of mine understanding in the hearts and minds of the listeners. Multiply their meaning and guide us into a deeper knowledge of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. I thank you for the opportunity to come here in peace and comfort to study your word together without fear of harm from oppressors. May we not take a day for granted. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Since there are only 10 verses in our passage today, I'd really like to read them. Um, And so if you'll turn to page 136 in your book, you can follow along and read with me. The Word of God, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Suffering. It is the common experience of mankind in some way, form, or fashion. This side of eternity, if you have not been through some type of suffering or not now in some type of suffering, it is coming. But we know that Peter is talking about a certain type of suffering here. Suffering because of their faith. And this passage is intended to encourage these young Christians. He points them to Christ and then to Noah, and then to the work God is doing now. When Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, 
he knows of what he speaks. <laughs> he knows what it feels like for such gripping fear to overtake you that you would do or say anything to survive. After all, this is the same man who, out of fear, denied Christ three times before his crucifixion. But he also knows what happened on the shore after Christ's resurrection when he asked Peter if he loved him and he told him to care for his sheep three times. This man, Peter, the author, knows of the fear and failure, but he also knows of the redemption and the restoration found only in Christ. That is of what he speaks in this letter. We might ask, how can he say, who is there to harm you? When obviously they were being harmed physically during this time. But I think we all know, based on what he has told them in the first part of this letter, where their inheritance lies, that he means no ultimate harm, no eternal harm. Other scriptures point to this truth as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? We see in Romans 6.31, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In Hebrews 13.6, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. We just studied that last in Luke 12, 4, 6 through 7. It feels inadequate to even talk about this in light of life-threatening persecution our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing in other countries today. There's no doubt that Christian persecution is increasing in this country, but in more subtle ways. Social ways, political ways, financial ways that involve the death of something in our lives. Maybe relationships, reputation in the workplace or community, control of a situation. But for the most part, not our life itself. We in general as Christian, Western Christians don't really study church history we, we don't often talk about the martyrs who died during the early church and the years after. I know there are individuals in this room who love history and you have benefited from growing up in a church and family cultures where reading and studying about church martyrs was probably the norm. But most of us, many of us, probably grew up in a very modern Western church family culture where we studied scripture to find what applied to us so that we could take it out into the world for that week or that day and live it out for the Lord. Well-meaning teaching, well-meaning, but we were not often taught about the big picture of the church since the beginning of time and the story being written till the end 
and the role that suffering and the martyrs have played in that big picture. Unless we had the occasional Sunday school teacher who happened to be a church history professor or took a one-off class, we generally didn't hear about martyrs like Polycarp, as Ryan Moore mentioned in his sermon on Sunday, or Ridley and Latimer in the latter story as the clergymen prepared themselves to be burned at the stake. On October 16, 1555, is credited with turning to Ridley and encouraging him with these words. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Now, Latimer didn't just one day have the faith to say that in the face of imminent death. It's from his knowledge that God was ultimately in control of his life, that he was able to speak such words of faith. That's the same knowledge that Peter is giving to these young Christians. We may or may not ever be called upon to be burned at the stake like Polycarp, Latimer, Ridley, and others, or beheaded like John the Baptist. But we are called upon each day to die to self. I'm in no way, no way comparing the type of suffering and fear of physical harm these Christians were facing with the modern inconveniences we consider hardship today. But... What I am saying is, if the suffering of your day is laying down your life for Christ in countless ways, dying to self, risking rejection, putting Christ's commands before your own desires, it usually doesn't come in one decision in one day. It starts with small choices, sacrifices, giving up of self in the minutia of the day. That is where this theology is lived out for most of us. When you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There will be opposition, even if you are zealous for what is good and righteous. But remember what we studied last year, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we tell ourselves when someone rejects us because we are Christians or because we have taken an unpopular stand, what we tell ourselves and how we deal with the tiniest details of the day in this manner doesn't come without all of what Peter has said from the beginning of the book. Who are you in Christ? What has Christ done for you? What is the final chapter? You have an inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. And that enables us to have the joy, the difference that would cause people to have questions about the hope within us. Why would they ask about hope? John Piper says this, Because the craving for happiness in the human heart is so strong that the only explanation for our willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake, 
must be some hope on the other side. That's exactly what Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Hope sustains zeal for the good under persecution. People know that intuitively. They see the difference. Do we have a zeal for any cause in this world? Or is our routine so harmless that it fits nicely with the way things are going on around us? Food for thought as we move throughout. And Peter is moving through the life of Christ in this passage. He's talking about what Christ did for them and the example that he set in this not fitting in and what was going on around him. He talks about that Christ suffered unjustly and was crucified to triumph over the guilt of our sin. He was raised from the dead to triumph over death. He preached to spirits triumphant over the gates of hell. And he is seated at the right hand triumphant over all the earth, giving him authority and dominion over all things. This is, in essence, an early confession of faith. Christ had walked where they walked, lived as they lived, and experienced persecution at the hands of the same people persecuting these Christians. Peter is making the point that Christ is one with them in this experience. He is saying Christ, by his very life, proclaimed the gospel, was mocked and rejected and suffered and was declared innocent by the power of God. Then Noah, by the act of building an ark and believing that judgment was real, preached the gospel in his day and was declared innocent by the power of God. And he says, you will be declared innocent by that same God. But he wants them to know that Christ is not merely an example. He is a substitute, that his sacrifice was final Now, they would have witnessed the repeated need for sacrifices for their sin by the high priest. That the moment it was finished, it it was needed again. The fact that there was no need for another sacrifice would ring true to the hearts of what Christ had done. These are people who are being mistreated, misunderstood, mocked. They have the ultimate peace and approval through Christ now. We ourselves must not take that for granted. We have been adopted into his family. One of our best defenses against fear of man is to rest in the peace that passes all understanding. That we have been accepted unconditionally by our Heavenly Father through the blood of Christ. It wipes away our need to turn to this world to see our worth. And we are not alone. We must be the mirrors for each other. We must hold the word of God, the truth of who we are in God, up to one another to be reflected back to them. When we are thought silly or unintelligent for our beliefs or experience true forms of persecution, we are not alone. We are part of this bigger picture, joining hands with those who have gone before us, those who stand with us, 
and those who will come after in the community of believers. The church rescued by Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. As we move through the passage and Peter talks about baptism and the flood, we see that water not only cleanses, but destroys. Water in these verses is not only a symbol of cleansing, but also of God's tremendous judgment and a means of grace. You can only be saved by the ark to be secure from destruction. And Christ is the ark. But man is tempted. We're tempted to hide in other arks like the one of Noah's day when People said, oh, God will never bring, up, bring judgment. You're a fool, Noah. And the story of the flood is the reality of the judgment of God. Other arcs that we've hidden in through the years of measuring the level of our personal goodness by the goodness of others and finding ourselves better. But Romans 2.16 says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. They will no longer be hidden. The ark will, will fall apart. And then another ark maybe people try to hide in is, I've been baptized, therefore I'm saved. And Peter is saying here, baptism alone is not enough. It's Christ. Christ is the ultimate ark. And the flood was both destruction and salvation. It's what destroyed the wickedness and cleansed the earth, but it allowed the ark to float, float safely in the midst of the destruction. Sinclair Ferguson says it in this beautiful picture. Uh, Peter is reminding them that the only ark that will take them through the waters of God's judgment is Christ. So if you have baptism without the risen Christ, you're merely washing dirt away. We have an ark in which we can hide from the judgment of God, and that ark is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Run into the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ and be safe. Now, as we move further through the passage, Peter mentions something that happens between his Christ's resurrection and ascension. And the language Peter uses is that of a herald that's making a proclamation as proclaiming victory in war before taking a seat at the right hand of God, proclaiming victory over the spirits who are kept in prison. In other words, he announced his victory to his enemies who were held in prison. The Christians Peter is writing to need to hear this because the attacks that Noah experienced, they have experienced. They need to be reminded that Christ has defeated the principalities that are attacking them. And there are three different classical thoughts about who, what the spirits are in prison, and you had those in your study book. Um, theologians who are much smarter than I cannot agree, and even Luther um, said that he wasn't certain about what Peter meant. So rather than taking time to talk about 
which one I'm leaning toward, I want to talk about what we can know about what Peter is saying. Rather than digging in the trees, in other words, let's step back and get the drone shot of the forest. To what is the truth being said here, no matter who the spirits are in prison? It's what Christians have heard repeatedly throughout this letter, isn't it? Only the message is growing with intensity. As Peter knows, the persecution will grow with intensity. The drone view shows us Christ has defeated all and has total and complete authority and has taken his rightful place with the Father, forever changed, forever linked with man, in that he humbled himself and took on the body of a man in order to pay the ultimate price once and for all for sin. And he announced to all the principalities that it is indeed finished. Jesus now exercises his lordship over all of, all things. All his promises are fulfilled. Paul Tripp says it well, your savior now rules on your behalf. And you need not doubt and you need not be afraid because he will return to complete his work. And there will be a day, there will be a day when the mockery will end. And there will be a day when there will be no more torture, no more rejection, no more suffering, no more sadness. And you will live with him forever. And he will not relent, he will not rest, he will not quit until that work is complete and every one of his children, he reigns, he reigns on our behalf. In my addition, hallelujah, he reigns on our behalf. Spiritual warfare is real. It has been here since the beginning. It will be here till the end. Noah, eight people, eight people in all the earth. Tying spiritual warfare to our previous week, because after all, this is one big letter. (laughs) It ties in to the passage about marriage. I mean, remember that our war is not with each other. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of evil. We can only submit, whether it's in marriage, in government, to persecution, with not as broken captives, but as Christ submitted with humility, with the knowledge that we're not submitting to man, but ultimately to our Heavenly Father who holds our inheritance for us in heaven. And we talked in our small group last week about a counselor that told um my husband and I in premarital counseling, that if we would remember that we are created in the image of God and a visual picture to remember that is of Christ standing behind our spouse whenever we're having conversations, it would temper what we said to them or what was important to argue about. (laughs) And that is a game changer. And I thought that applies too to all of humanity. When we picture that, 
when we picture Christ ultimately in charge of everything. It's a game changer. He holds our inheritance in heaven for us. So when you're in the weeds, in the thick of it, let's remind each other of the drone view, acknowledging, yes, this is difficult. God does care about the details of our life. But when you pull out to this big picture of the story, the big story, this momentary suffering is but a blip in light of eternity. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, and this is where we're going to read this together on your outline. You'll see this because it's encouraging to me. The word of the Lord. We are afflicted in every way. And y'all can read with me. But not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And he reminds them with us, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us be a people that runs to the ark of the gospel. Amen.